This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Waluigi. Happy birthday to you. And many more. That's right, folks. (laughs) As we record this on Saturday, July 22nd, we're just one day past the birthday of that iconic Nintendo character, Waluigi. (laughs) Welcome to Overdue. A podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Also known as Waluigi. We love Waluigi, as anybody who's listened to this podcast for any amount of time knows. Yep. That's true. We talk about him every week here on Waluigi Corner, the opening segment of Overdue Podcast, a podcast about books. But then what do we talk about after we talk about Waluigi every week? Every week when we're done talking about Waluigi, we talk about books. One of us reads them. The other one is here for the fun times. And we're going to tell you what happens in the book and also like where it came from. Um, and maybe you've read it and maybe you haven't, but maybe you'll learn something. You'll almost definitely learn something. I mean, about Waluigi, if not about the book <laughs> that we read. So this week I read Like Water for Chocolate by Laura Esquivel. Um, it was published in 1989 in Mexico and then I think uh, in 1992 in the States first. Um, do you and have any- also in 1992 it was made into a successful film yes. that won many awards many many awards I think nominated for some awards here in America um, and I think it's up for some uh, TV adaptation soon I saw an announcement about it back in like March okay. um, so interesting if this is if this is a thing that you already know about and you dig this book be on the lookout for that Um Andrew, what do you know about Ms. Esquivel? Um, there's not a lot about her out there that I found. Um, so she was I know she was born in 1950. I know she is a Mexican novelist and also a politician. She is um, serving in the uh, Chamber of Deputies, which is roughly equivalent to the U.S. House of Representatives. Like it's the lower house of their bicameral legislature. Mm. If you want to get all schoolhouse rock about yeah, it. Yeah, dust off those textbooks. Um. Uh, like Water for Chocolate was her first book, but she's written a bunch of others, um, and a lot of times they have a sort of high concept conceit. Mm-hmm. Um, so her her next one, La Ley del Amor, was um, it's as far as I can tell, it was set at least partially in the 23rd century. Like it okay. combines magical realism and sci-fi, which I feel like, yeah. I feel like you could just do sci-fi and like and and make it be like the technology exists. <laughs> To make a girl like cry and then it fills up the oceans and drowns the entire earth. Yeah, but maybe maybe as we talk about the magical realism in this book, you'll, I could see why deliberately putting it in sci-fi would still like be different than like, hey, we have teleportation now. Sure. Though I'm here for magical realism teleportation. It sounds pretty cool. 
Yeah. Um, and then there was a there was another book that she wrote um, called what was it called? It was called uh, Tan Veloz Como El Deso, um, which is about somebody who has a gift for understanding what people want to say rather mm. than what they actually say. Ooh. And let me just say, I really, really appreciate when I meet people who can do that with what I'd say, <laughs> like in real life. And so it sounds like a neat kind of personality type to, to base a book around. Being able to actually decode all of Yeah, the, because like yeah. language is an imperfect delivery mechanism for thought. Like, <laughs> it's very true. It's just the best we can do. We are all just out here struggling with language. Let's be frank about it. Mm-hmm. I'll be Craig. Well, I you can, be I'll frank. be Andrew. <laughs> oh! <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> Uh, I know that yeah, something, maybe language, maybe is a good language can't deliver our thoughts directly. Like that's probably good that there's that layer in between. Yeah, the dumb we could... stuff in our heads and what we can actually convey to other people. And I don't know Noam Chomsky personally, but it's my understanding that he thinks that language also affects how we think. So if we didn't have language, who knows? Just be banging rocks together. We'd probably be happier too. <laughs> Sounds like a great time. I'll be banging rocks together as one big human brotherhood and sisterhood. Uh, I know that she also, after she attended school for becoming a teacher, she started a children's theater workshop. Uh, She met an actor and director, Alfonso Arau, who she has worked with a number of times on films and adaptations of her books, I think. I don't know if he Mm -hmm. worked on like Water for Chocolate or not. but Um, And then I guess as we kind of wrap up the opening segment the book is set during the mexican revolution um i think she said that she had a like grandmother or great grandmother who had a similar experience to the main character of this book i was a, gonna like, ask like when when is that in gregorian terms oh sure so 1910 to 1920 is the okay. revolution itself cool. um and i certainly unfortunately forgot a lot of what I learned about it in high school so like even just a cursory review (laughs) after reading this book was helpful to like oh it was a revolt against the Diaz administration and then it became this like multi-pronged civil war that had a dictatorship in the middle of it Um, and then the Mexican constitution was signed in 1917 uh, and it ended it was the overall conflict was there are there's a get this Andrew there's a small group of people who mm-hmm. have a lot of resources and a lot of power and a lot of land that's weird and they're exploiting all the people who don't have those things and there are more of them that's so still still weird yeah so a uh, war started and then apparently that there were multiple groups of people fighting for different reasons so of course it went on longer than just a, a two-sided conflict um the U.S. has a modeled history of involvement in the in this conflict, um, and I'll say for this book, it is. I assume we're advising the people with all the resources who are keeping it away from everybody else. I don't know what we were doing, <laughs> so uh, I do know there was a like folks fled to the U.S. because of the conflict. So in this book, people do come to and from the the United States at least once. Um, but the war is more 
Uh, as I said, it's more of a backdrop to this novel, and we'll talk about how some of the characters like represent parts of the war, but because it is predominantly about a group of women living in one ranch at one time, um, we're not seeing the, like, they're not going out to fight or anything like that, at least as, mm-hmm. as the book begins. Um, so it's much more, the war is, like, both a, like, painting in the background and also, like, the actions of the book are a metaphor for some of the conflicts in, in the war. Sure. Um, but that's not, again, like, that shaped an entire country that is our neighbor, and I don't know as much of it about it as I should. And this book is a good reminder that, like, of the types of stories that came out of that and, and how that could shape a culture, you know? Yeah, like, I, I've been thinking about this a little bit because we're doing a... We'll talk about this more in a minute. We're doing a live show tomorrow about Anne of Green Gables, which takes place in Canada. Yeah, thanks everybody for coming who came. Thanks everyone who for coming who came. Um, and yeah, it just, it like... Both in researching for this book and in researching for Anne of Green Gables, like I just I realize how little I know about just anything about like the history or the government or like yeah. the culture of the countries that immediately border us. To say nothing of the ones on like the other side of the globe, it's just like both like geography is a bad a bad subject for me. <laughs> And probably also like the intricacies of how other countries work is a bad and, and, for me. And like I probably just should know more. I probably should. We get probably we get made fun of a little bit anytime we like pronounce anything yeah. Canadian or like read yep. anything that took place in Canada. I think I don't know. I I increasingly feel like I should take that criticism and use it as an opportunity <laughs> to grow as a person. You know? I, yeah, and and something that this book certainly is exploring and we haven't really touched on it as much with any Canadian authors, but certainly authors of any culture. I think we talked about it a little with Mark Marquez. Um, Garcia Marquez. Yes. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Um, the, the, we take for granted a lot of the narratives that are like American narratives that are like born out of like the types of people we've told ourselves the country was founded by yeah and like like the the plumbers from brooklyn who hate (laughs) turtles yeah uh and you know took down kings giant turtle kings um and i don't have as strong a sense of like what it is to consume like a, a predominantly uh a diet of fiction predominantly from a different country and and what that might like or at least mean. from like a non like a non European country. Yeah, sure. Oh, certainly, certainly. We talked about that a little bit with one Q eighty four who wrote that that guy <laughs> Murakami. Yeah, really? and and yeah. and he's kind of straddling that fence as it is. Um, well, yeah. So let's. I need to take a quick break, Andrew. Obviously, I do personally, and then mm-hmm. we'll come back and I'll tell you about this tasty book. Sounds good. Hey, Greg. Hey, Andrew. I wanted to take a second this week to tell you about a book. Oh, wait. Is, wait oh, okay. That's a surprise. That's new. Yeah. To talk to you about a book, Wonder of Wonders. Um, so we want to tell you a little bit about Don't Look the Bastards in the Eye, which is an Amazon book by Sean McKay. It's a zombie book. Mm. 
Zombies, delicious. Uh, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Just to recap, there are a lot of swears in the book. It's probably Technica a novella. It's probably technically a novella. <laughs> it's about monsters and how we are flawed humans. It's about a guy who's trying to murder someone. It's loosely based on a true story, obviously. Obviously. Uh, but Craig, I know you looked up some of the reviews for this book, and, yeah. and I want you to tell me more about what 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 are the people saying. Like, take me. Let's go to the streets and see what regular everyday folks are saying about this book. All right. So uh, Chloe thinks it has an unusual writing style, but well worth the read. Goes on to say this book made me laugh, um, and because it did, it gets four stars. Nice. Nice. I mean, what's that fifth star for? You? Uh, the fifth star is from Caroline. It's unconventional and intriguing. This one was and this was one interesting journey that was written like a string of indie rock songs, unique without concrete structure, while expressing bold thoughts freely. You heard it here first. It's the Radiohead of books. Uh, this book is funny, says TX Braveheart, and then uh, Patterson Nicole just says zombies. So unusual writing style, but well worth the read. Unconventional and intriguing. This book is funny. Zombies. Do you really need to know anything else? I don't think you do. But right, so, <laughs> but Sean McKay has uh, described it to people as quote sex, drugs, rock, and death. And he says that most people know when they they hear that whether they want to read it. So cool. So I hope I hope you have made up your mind now. Um, it's called Don't Look the Bastards in the Eye. It's by Sean McKay. That's spelled M-A-C-K-A-A-Y. Um, and it costs $2.99 on Amazon. Get it on your Kindle. Get it on your phone. Whatever you can run that Kindle app on, which is, spoiler alert, everything. everything. Yeah. <laughs> Andrew, let's talk about a book this, this time. This is the story of a book. Cried a river and drowned the whole world. Um, what's like water for chocolate about? What's that name? Oh, what's that name? Because it makes it sound like a bad trade. Okay. Like, oh, I got water. I'll give it to you for chocolate. <laughs> like you're playing some sort of kitchen Catan? I get, yeah, sure. Yeah. Kitchen Catan or just like we're back on the barter system. And, oh, sure. Well, the bombs and, have dropped. And yeah, I have and water, water and is a precious chocolate. resource, but because we're America, we got chocolate just like laying everywhere. Sure. So, mm-hmm. uh, Como Agua, Como Agua para Chocolate or Chocolate. I don't know. My Spanish is very bad. Boy, um, why'd you why'd you even attempt that one? Well, because it's written. One, one asks. Well, it's because that's the name <laughs> of the book in Spanish. Excuse me. Um, and it is like an idiom for, there's a couple different idiomatic meanings for it. You could be very angry um, or like kind of, you're roiling. Like uh, the expression being you're, you are boiling water that is ready to make hot chocolate, essentially. Um, or think about the readiness a little differently, Andrew. You are water that's ready for the chocolate. My note says hot and ready, like a pizza, or sexually. I want it's pro- they probably mean it in the pizza sense. Yes, for certain. I mean, Little Caesars was around in the eighties when this book was written. So, but what if they did mean it in the sexual sense? Okay, so so now that I know the idioms that the title is derived from. Yep. Like contextually, would do they mean pizza or do they mean doing it? They mean both. Uh, they mean. 
both of the they non-pizza mean both options. pizza and <laughs> doing no. it. Okay, ironically you. for a book about a lot of uh, food making and kitchen time, there is no pizza in this book, which is in retrospect disappointing at the time i didn't notice listen you can make a real good pizza in your kitchen at home pizza (laughs) is not just hot and ready it's true Mm. uh so it's primarily the non-pizza options um our main character tita de la garza she is a young woman as i said living during the mexican revolution she's living on a ranch with her mom mama elena her two sisters gertrudis and rosara they have a cook named nacha and a maid named chencha and uh, Tita is like water for chocolate. Over the course of the book, over the course of the book, there are times where she just gets so like hot-headed and angry that she kind of boils over. There are times when she is like ready for experiences, and they're not all like physical experiences. That sometimes it's like an emotional sexual experience. And we like to joke about sex on this podcast, and we probably will this week too. But like the feelings in this book are very strong, and the book okay. is not the book is not mocking them or anything like that. Even though I think you and I will probably mock them because that's just who we are. I mean, we're not even really mocking. we're not mocking. We're just, no, we're mocking we're just ourselves like really. Clean it up for laughs because it's easy. That's true, and that's the overdue lesson: is if there's an easy <laughs> laugh, you go for it. Don't hesitate. Just you, you see it there, you take it. You get it. So, Tita, when she was born, and this will this will introduce you to the magical realism of the book. Also, when she was born, um, so she was so sensitive to onions that anytime they were chopped, they say that she would just cry and cry. When she was still in her great grandmother's belly, oh, not her great grandmother. When she was still in her mother's belly, excuse me. Yeah, I was gonna say um... poor quote, poor pull quote. Excuse me, one second. When she was still in her mother's belly, her sobs were so loud that even the cook who was half deaf could hear them easily. Once her wailing got so violent that it brought on an early labor. The way the cook told it, she was washed into the world on a tide of tears that flooded the kitchen. Uh, So this story, this whole book, is being told from the perspective of Tita de la Garza's great niece, I believe, who also shares her name. And it's written in 12 chapters, one for each month of the year. And each, each chapter... Uh, starts with a recipe. Um, the first one is Christmas rolls. Ingredients, one can of sardines, half chorizo sausage, one onion, oregano, one can of chile serranos, ten hard rolls. This doesn't sound super Christmassy to me, but I guess I'm I'm trained to recognize like peppermint and cinnamon and vanilla as Christmas flavors. Sure, you're into like the Christmas desserts. Yeah, that's more of the sweet. I guess it's more of the savory. Yeah, we've also been watching some Great British Bake Off. Lately, oh, sure. So I know all all about them contrasts. And so we get um, to that onion quote that I just read, like on page one, because the narrator is talking about how you want to chop the onions and how it makes you cry, and she brings up her great aunt Tita, and then all of a sudden we are like relaying the story of this woman's uh, relatives from generations past, and that's where we will remain for the rest of the book basically so each chapter starts out with this recipe you get a little bit of instruction on like what the first step is and then that step relates to the story somehow and each dish has been made at some point in tita de la garza's life so like 
okay so it's it's been made in her life like how does contextually how does the recipe get integrated like is it are they always like literally making the recipe in the chapter that you're reading or yes. is it more of a like a metaphorical relationship or do you get a little bit of both or little, what's up? little bit of both. So the whole deal uh, is that sometimes these foods are capable of, at least as Tita makes them, because she grew up as a baby in the kitchen. Uh, she became like attuned with the kitchen. Her mom... Uh, wasn't able to breastfeed her, so she ate a lot of food that she wouldn't have otherwise eaten as a baby way earlier. Um, and she is able to cook with this skill and this fervor with these family recipes that when she is feeling very strong emotions, if people eat that food, it can affect them in that way. It sounds and- like she should be on uh, MasterChef Junior. Yes, but I it seems more like a X-Man superpower than like a Superman superpower. So and it's not really superpower. It's it's the book like it's magical realism like allowing her extreme emotions to infuse food. Um it's not treated like it's a fantasy novel or anything, but she's not deliberately trying to do this if that makes sense. Sure. If she were on television, I would expect that she would want to do it on purpose. No, I'm just saying like she's she is cooking from a young age so she goes on Master Chef Junior. Like you oh, you would assumed sure. a more complicated reading of the text than <laughs> I was actually delivering. <laughs> yeah, I think she's like she might be 16 or 17, so she might be more of a young GBBO contestant than a Master Chef Junior sure, contestant. Sure, 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 she's that the young one who always makes it to very like the far. quarterfinals yes. and then gets kicked out. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um so the thing with uh, with Tita is that she is close to her sister Gertrudis. She is not really close to her sister Rosara. Um, they it mostly have to do with like Rosara is not really comfortable in the kitchen, um, so she doesn't really identify with Tita. And Tita is the youngest, and that sets up one of the the like primary conflict for her in this book as the youngest in the family tradition. The youngest daughter has to take care of the mother and thus cannot get married. Okay. So early on in the book, uh, this man named Pedro meets Tita, falls in love with her, and wants to ask for her hand in marriage. And Mama Elena says, no, 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 not allowed. That not That's not going to happen, which kind of sucks, I think. And Tita thinks it sucks. <laughs> And Tita raises a good question in this scenario. Like, who, if you are the youngest daughter who has to take care of your mother until she dies, you don't get to have a kid who's going to take care of you. Like, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't work. Who takes care of the caretaker, Andrew? (laughs) It's a very existential question. I feel like we should do a comic book about it. Ooh, yes, with a man with a face that changes all the time. Yeah, who cares for the caretakers? Who cares for the caretakers? So then uh, Mama Elena's solution is to forbid Tita from marrying Pedro, but to offer up Rosara instead. And Pedro agrees to this because his plan, as he tells his father... When you're told there's no way you can marry the woman you love and your only hope of being near her is to marry her sister, wouldn't you do the same? Mm, I don't know, man. I feel like you're <laughs> you're like 
not satisfying two people in yeah. that situation. Yeah. You know? Uh-huh. No, for real. So this kicks off my relationship with Pedro, which is full of skepticism. <laughs> like, I understand that he is the object of her desire. It The way that the book presents their love, it, it's not... There's no courtship, really. Um, certainly because it's not allowed, in a way. And it's not explicitly just like, oh that person's really beautiful or that person's really handsome. I want to spend the rest of my life with them. It's the way I feel when they look at me and, and who I feel like as a person when I'm near them means that we are fated to, it's just treated like it's fate. Like they are just meant to be. Sure. Um, and the, the story wouldn't work if that weren't the case. So like it's neither here nor there why it is in, in that way. Um, so Tita, when she basically has to accept that Pedro uh, is going to be with her sister, um, she like this like wintry chill like gets in her from the like through the door, and the book describes it as like a thing that she fights against for like the rest of her life. So this book is very tactile and uh, physical with its emotions there's always there's usually some sort of physical manifestation of how you're feeling or a thing that caused how you're feeling um that is not it is both a metaphor to the reader and a literal thing that happens to the character okay um so the this gets to what when you asked about her cooking superpowers um of course her sister and pedro get married and she has to make the cake. Like, she has to make some of the food for this wedding, which sucks. <laughs> this, that seems unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, it's going to happen, man, but... I'm just like... Yeah, I don't like Pedro's plan either. Like, I know that they're t- meant to be together, but, like, he doesn't... For me, spoiler alert, I don't, I, he never redeems himself in my eyes. I always, I'm just trying to think, like, Laura doesn't have a sister. Susanna doesn't have a sister. Like, I can't put myself in exactly... <laughs> In those shoes? Sure, yeah. But it just, it seems bad. It just is bad. It seems bad. It's not a great plan. You got some very, like, Hamilton-y stuff going on. Yeah, for real. Definitely some Hamilton-y stuff going on. Uh, Um, Yeah, and they're always, like, bumping into each other and, like, touching the same pot and then having feelings about it. Like, it's one of Wait, okay, what kind of feelings is touching a pot? bring like make boil over well speak (laughs) so that is actually a chapter ahead from where i am right now but i'll tell you right now so don't forget Mm -hmm. um she's making this uh like i think it's the mole dish oh no it's a quail in rose petal sauce that she decides to make and they like encounter each other in the kitchen and she gets all like hot and bothered and she make and he oh he gives her some flowers because their their cook passed away and she is like she's using the roses and her her love for him is infused and her desire for him is infused into the roses and the quail and Gertrudis eats it her sister eat they all eat it and like Pedro knows what's up with that meal he mm-hmm. knows mm-hmm. and then Gertrudis eats it and she like oh, she gets flushed 
and like goes into town and like locks eyes with a soldier and all of a sudden like needs him and she gets so hot and bothered that she literally she goes to take a shower andrew and the heat is radiating off her body it's an outside shower with like a wooden like blind shack around it i can see where this is going and i'm already like the heat prepared for some magical realism the heat radiates off her body sets the shower on fire (laughs) and she bursts out of the shower naked and the rose smells that wafted out of her fire body become a cloud that like whoosh into town get the soldier (laughs) And he's like, oh, my God, I got to go. And he gets on a horse and rides to their ranch, picks up this naked woman and like takes her away. I was just expecting the the there to be like steam in the shower. So nope. like maybe I wasn't prepared for where <laughs> that was going to go. Nope. Yikes. And this Gertrudis doesn't come back. Uh, she like does have a relationship with this guy. They are in love, but they're separated and next they hear of her, she is like working out a brothel. And Tita's worried that she'd never got new clothes. She did get new clothes, but she's worried about it. So that's that's the second big magical realism moment that happens. The first is that is this it's wedding. The shower, the shower fire. The shower fire. Listen, who among <laughs> us hasn't been so horny that they set a shower on fire? We were I all dr- teenagers once. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Uh, the first one is the wedding, obviously, that's making Tita very upset. And she's working with her, uh, the cook, who's basically kind of like a grandmother to her because Mama Elena hates Tita um, and Tita hates Mama Elena. So they're making this big cake for the wedding. And Tita is, things have happened with Pedro and she's very upset. And she starts like crying into the meringue into for the fondant on the cake. And. Uh, not just like just go lie down it'll be fine but it was too late her tears and her sorrow had already gotten into the cake so mm-hmm. when everybody at the wedding starts eating this cake first they are like filled with like a great wave of longing um, you know Pedro starts crying Mama Elena starts remembering her husband that died and then people get so <laughs> sad and cry that they all just start vomiting everywhere and it just ruins the wedding because everyone's vomiting all over everything. And uh, it doesn't, of course, affect Tita because she had already been that sad. So, Was there ever a time that you vomited from emotions rather than from like being sick? That's a good question. I don't think I ever have. It's very possible that I did it as a kid if I got like... Because I'm, I'm a crier in general and I... if you I have, Yes. And if... I am like racked with sobs. I can imagine working myself up to a to a puke, but I don't think I've done it like in front of someone, for sure. <laughs> have you Have you ever gotten so nervous that you've needed to puke? No, I don't know. The only times I've ever puked has been because I was sick or because I was <laughs> I had imbibed too freely. Oh, of sure, that sweet vino. <laughs> Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the other, well, there's another one. Have you ever been so sad and vomited uh, that then later you died? I guess you haven't because you're still doing this podcast with me. 
<laughs> Unless you're you know a what happens when you assume. Oh, that's true. No, you're um, right. I haven't done that. But uh, Nacha, the older cook, uh, passes away because she got she started longing for her long past fiance um, and was like heartbroken and dies. And that's how Tita becomes the, the head cook of the house. When this is, leads to her making the sexy chicken, um, the sex quail, excuse me. Um, I'm just thinking like an Ally McBeal style dancing plucks <laughs> chicken now. Like a computer, like 90s TV. Ooga-chaka. Yeah, Ooga, computer Ooga. generated like a plucks chicken just dancing around. Sure. So speaking of babies, actually, um, Rosara, now married to Pedro, is pregnant and has a baby named Roberto. But of course, Rosero, Rosara can't breastfeed, um, and Tita like starts sneak breastfeeding the baby, and like Pedro knows about it. So actually, this baby that probably would have driven them apart starts to bring them together, and Tita's like, "Yo, I shouldn't be able to breastfeed this kid. Like, I've never been pregnant. I've never had sex." I was gonna say, like, I don't. <laughs> It's treated as a magical event in the I book. I don't think it is impossible no. for someone who has never been pregnant to produce milk. I don't think that's impossible. That said, sure. that is not unlikely regular. No. <laughs> it's not a thing that would normally happen. And it is presented in this book with the same miraculous fanfare that it arose out of her desire to calm this baby that she yeah, loves. Yeah, like how does the book treat those magical realism moments? Because that's that's always the tension in these books, right? Is like they're they're trying to root themselves in like real emotions and in real occurrences, but then also they have these super heightened things that happen that draw attention to like particular relationships or particular events. So like what's I don't know when when she can when she catches on fire and runs out of the shower, or when she can magically breastfeed this kid. Like, what what do the other characters in the book react like? That uh, is it even commented on? It is not always commented on. Is it just treated as something like? Of course that would happen. Yes, especially. Of course, if I was, of course, if I was really, really ready to go and I got in the shower, I would set it on fire with my own, the heat of my own desire. That's true. Um, yeah, it's basically treated as a thing that happens. So, like, uh, the breastfeeding thing is kept as a secret. Let me. I want to find the the moment. Okay. Um, so this is like over tita's shoulder a little bit it's this kind of tight third person um she's talking about how the baby starts trying to find milk in her breast just because it is so hungry and is so upset um so she knew that's not how breastfeeding works it's not there's not just like milk buried in there that you can find if (laughs) you try hard enough the baby doesn't know the baby just knows (laughs) that baby that it is near a chest that might be able to help it um listen and i i know that feeling yes we've uh, all been there baby yes she knew it was completely dry but at least it would act as a pacifier and keep him occupied while she decided what to do to appease his hunger the baby clamped desperately onto the nipple and he sucked and sucked when he when she saw the boy's face slowly grow peaceful and when she heard the way he was swallowing she began to suspect that something extraordinary had happened was it possible that she was feeding the baby she removed the boy from her breast a thin stream of milk sprayed out tita could not understand it it wasn't possible for an unmarried woman to have milk short of a supernatural act unheard of in these times when the child realized he'd been separated from his meal he started to wail 
kill again. Immediately, Tita let him take her breast until his hunger was completely satisfied and he was sleeping peacefully like a saint. She was so absorbed in her contemplation of the child that she didn't notice Pedro coming into the kitchen. At this moment, Tita looked like Cirrus herself, goddess of plenty. So it's just like, she's like, this is crazy, but here we go. I mean, does it, how, is she, I'm so distressed by this. <laughs> I'm more distressed than I would normally be because our, one of our friends sure, just okay. had a baby and has told us a lot about the yeah. realities of breastfeeding. And like, after this happens, is she just producing milk now? Or is this like a one-time magical thing that happens? No, or? It, it is happening for a while. Um, and because Rosara is so knocked out, so like Rosara throughout the book, and this is a this is an interesting thing that the book does that I'm not sure. I don't know how I feel about it, but Rosara is not a good person, um, even though her husband is in love with a different woman, and she's just kind of like living that life. Um, but she is presented as having like betrayed her sister for marrying her love, I guess. Um, but Rosara is like not portrayed as a good person and she's portrayed as like physically busted at all costs. So like she can't feed her own baby. Um, later on, uh, Roberto gets sick and passes away. Um, she then like gains a bunch of weight and becomes super flatulent and like Pedro doesn't want to be near her anymore. Um, and then like, it's the whole book presents her as like physically inept and in a book where your emotions are so tied to who you are in a literal physical basis. Like, I guess that that makes sense from the storytelling convention. It just, it really seems like she's getting a raw deal. It does seem like Rosara's getting a raw deal. I don't have any, I don't have any love lost for Tita. I think that by and large, she's doing her best in this book and, and growing as a person as she can. I think Pedro's the real jerk here, personally. Yeah, I was going um, to ask. Like we we have we've had discussions abo- before about how like how are we supposed? To, how does the author want us to feel about a person versus like how we actually feel about the person? Sure, Who are we supposed to like and and dislike in this? So we're really supposed to like Tita. We're supposed to love her. She is coming out the she is trying to fight out from beneath the will of her mother and and the life that her mother has consigned her to now of course this is the household is largely women living on this ranch in revolutionary mexico so like it's not an easy life and they're doing their best but it also means that tita is like basically spending every day all day preparing food for her family um, and when things, when she wants to do things or when she wants things for herself, she doesn't get them. Uh, her mom criticizes her at every point in time. Um, Pedro is like, she's really into him, but then the fact that she, that he keeps coming around is really, and then like married her sister and then is around her all the time. That's actually worse for her in a lot of ways. Um, so this gets to like the the war metaphor of of the book. Um, I read, uh, I can't remember where I read it, but someone was like, I think it might have been a review of the book, was talking about how the three sisters represent different uh, parts of the populace for the revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could also look at Mama Elena representing like the establishment. Um, 
the the group of oligarchs or whoever. Um, Razara is like the upper class folks who like things get handed to them and they have nothing to worry about and they don't actually make anything. Um, Gertrudis actually later on in the book she joins up with the army like she gets out of the brothel she finds the guy who stole her when she was naked and they're in love and they're together <laughs> um and she actually becomes like part of the military and it's fighting in the military and Gertrude seems pretty cool uh and then Tita are the people who are just kind of like left in the middle just trying to live just trying to fight for their rights but don't really get anything directly out of it um so we're with her throughout the whole book and she doesn't i don't think that she does anything personally i don't think she does anything like wrong wrong Mm -hmm. the there is a point later in the book where her and pedro uh do get intimate while he is of course married to her sister nice and or not I, nice, I guess. Like, I don't... I don't so know. this is after she's had, like, a big row with her mom. She's kind of had a nervous breakdown. and she, Nice use of row. Good work. Thanks. Um, and she's had a nervous breakdown. She's taken in by this doctor named Dr. John Brown. And she's developed a romantic relationship with him, sort of. He's really into her. And he plans to marry her. But first, he has to take this trip back to the United States to, like, get his aunt his like elderly aunt so that he can bring her <laughs> to the wedding, I guess. Um, and while he's gone, her and Pedro get closer together at the house. Um, and the, the mom at this point has passed away and here's, they're like, she's in her room, like feeling emotionally, feeling emotions about what's going on. And, Here's just the quote. Without, uh, she turns around and Pedro's behind her. Without answering, Pedro went to her, extinguished the lamp, pulled her to a brass bed that had once belonged to her sister, and throwing himself upon her, caused her to lose her virginity and learn of true love. That's a sentence. That is quite a sentence. Like a lot, a lot happens in that one. A lot, a, a lot happens in a single sentence, and just a lot of stuff in that one. It's never Tita never really pushes back on the idea that it was solely Pedro's doing, even though beat to beat, I will put a lot of blame on Pedro there. Um, I feel like we can blame a lot of stuff on Pedro. Uh, and be cool. like, yeah. Pedro sounds like a, like yeah. not a good guy. Yeah. And so then I'm going to, uh, at this point I want to start saying some late book stuff because it gets into the most magical realist stuff in this entire book. And I need yeah, to hit, tell hit, you like all the, about hit, it. What, what else do we need to know about this book? What's, so, what really grabbed you and I shook do, you and pushed you down and kicked you in the face? Whoa. I do want to say, though, that like if you are planning to go read this book for the first time and you've made it this far in this podcast, like well, you can pause it if you want to go read it. If you really don't want to know. But we the got stuff that gets warning crazy. at the beginning. We do got that warning. So she had sex with Pedro. She thinks she might be pregnant. And Gertrudis comes home and uh, she's like, oh, my God, I got to I got to tell John when he comes home. Uh, I got to I can't tell Pedro. And Gertrudis is like, nope, I'm going to do it. And she spills the beans. Um, and so <laughs> Pedro is like outside kind of he's gotten drunk and he's like singing a love song outside her window. Meanwhile, Rosara is like just up in her room upset, I guess. Um and Mama Elena's ghost shows up, Andrew, mm-hmm. and starts yelling at Tita for ruining everything. Mm-hmm. 
And Tita says, I know who I am, a person who has a perfect right to live her life as she pleases. Once for all, leave me alone. I won't put up with you. I hate you. I've always hated you. And the ghost turns into like a fireball and shoots out the window and lands on the ground on like on Pedro knocks a lantern over and Pedro catches on fire. A lot of people catching on fire in this one. Huh? So a ghost tried to kill Pedro and uh they they he recovers. It's okay. I he assume lives. this is just like I always wonder the the people who live in these magical realism wor- worlds if they just <laughs> look out the window and they're like, "Man, I guess like guess there's magical realism happening again." <laughs> There's a part better, put, where... better close the storm windows. Like this, <laughs> there's an angry ghost mom coming someone, through. Someone caught on fire in the shower again. We better, we better just keep our heads down till this one passes. <laughs> so she has to care for Pedro. Rosara sees how Tia's caring for him and is like, "Well, you're making a fool out of me, but he's yours, I guess. This sucks." Um, and she had a she had a daughter, um, Esperanza. And so Tita decides to tell John that she can't marry him because she loves Pedro too much. And then we cut to the last chapter of the book. Um, we've done a time jump. Rosara has died. Uh, her daughter grew up and is marrying John's son. And Fine. we're and we're at a wedding. And we find out a little way into the chapter. And I was actually very impressed with how this was done. That it's not actually uh, Tita and Pedro or John's wedding. It's actually in the future so that it's Esperanza and this guy Alex's wedding and she makes all these uh, and so she's like dancing with Pedro and Pedro's like well, let's finally get married we had our you know our arrangement for so many years and Tita has made these wonderful chiles that are stuffed with meat and stuff and everyone gets real horny and leaves the wedding (laughs) (laughs) everyone ate these chiles and then like has to leave and like some of the like people like just park their car on the side of the road and just start getting down because they have to yeah and her and pedro that sounds responsible you don't want to be driving while horny her and pedro are finally alone and finally finally no like alone alone like they're not being like sneaky with what they're doing and she and him decide to have some sex and he has set up this room full of candles. Now the candles is a thing that is part of like a metaphor that John told her about all of us have like a candle that we carry inside ourselves, but we need other people to help us light it. Okay. Sounds uncomfortable, but sure. But sure. (laughs) And while they're having sex, uh, which, uh, Briefly, the ghost of Nacha shows up to like light an extra candle. Like, have fun, guys. Nice. Enjoy. Um, she starts to like really get into it, and then she hears John's voice, which is a little awkward in her head. And it says, "If a strong emotion suddenly lights all the candles we carry inside ourselves, it creates a brightness that shines far beyond our normal vision, and then a splendid tunnel appears that shows us the way that we forgot when we were born and calls us to recover our lost divine origin. The soul longs to return to the place where it came from, leaving the body lifeless. And she decides... What that means is I can't have too good of a time at sex or I'll die. <laughs> I'm not ready 
to die yet from pleasure. I want to have some of this pleasure for the rest of my life. Makes Man, sense so we, far. We, we all got to strike that balance in our it's, lives. You can't light, you burn the candle too hot, it, the candle's gone. It's just mm-hmm. melted. Mm-hmm. But Pedro did not know this lesson, and Pedro dies. He ascended, basically. <laughs> and she's so upset that she is thinking about this metaphor. She literally starts eating, like, eating matches to reignite her love for Pedro, I suppose. Her memory and love for Pedro light them inside of her, and the house goes up in flames. The entire house burns to the ground, and the only thing left is a cookbook full of recipes and the most fertile soil in the region. (laughs) Of course. Of course. So. Wonderful. Yeah. I don't know what that's supposed to say about their love for each other. I just they it was very fertile. That's a thing. <laughs> and fiery and hot, I guess. Uh so then the the narrator is then like kind of closes out the book by saying that she's been making all these recipes and going through this book and she's eaten food that has come from this land and it's so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um and she's trying to like bring the the knowledge of these meals like back into her family. So that's the some of the stuff that is uh very magical it sounds very magical maybe it's, not very real no but it's always grounded in an emotion or a desire it's not just like magic for magic's sake no one's casting no, I mean, spells and that's the whole point of magical realism right yeah. it's like the blending of get this the magic and the realism. Yeah, to be reductive. This is, I yeah. don't think anybody else has ever had this observation before, so I just feel like we need to let that breathe. Sure. No, I think, I think you're right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I, what I was particularly struck by in this book was, as I said before, like how physical it all was. Like it was all very tied to like your body feeling hot or cold. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm sad. It was like my emotion is causing a physical state in me and now that is being manifest in the in the physical world um it's always really well tied together um and then i also really liked this the the like setup and delivery of each like emotion food that happened i don't think i've ever had a sexual food andrew have you ever had a sexual food a sexual food I feel like bananas are the most sexual food. Stop it. <laughs> I mean, I've had... Wait, well, or like hot dogs or something. Like I've had a really like good... Like a good bratwurst. Like, like a, a good beer broil bratwurst. I've had a really sexual good food. pot roast. Pot roast? I'm just thinking That about you're that. going with? That's not shaped like a wiener at all. I'm just thinking about that pot roast right now. Just oh, no. Oh, no. You got to stop. Can we? Okay, to make it not weird for a second. You got, no, Andrew. you got to cool it. You got to go dump a <laughs> pitcher of cold water on yourself. And when I say weird, I just mean uncomfortable for you. Um, no, it's can we... very, no, it's uncomfortable for <laughs> thousands of people who download this podcast every week. So Can we, though, can we talk about food as we close out this show? And I don't want to. I don't want to. Can we? Don't, well, maybe I've ruined it. But I want to know, <laughs> like, if there are foods and, and leave behind this book's preoccupation with like sexual food. 
right or my preoccupation with it but like uh, what I, are if i can i will okay what no are either meals or foods that you have like really strong sense memory for that like it takes you to a place or you can even now like picture that food and like picture where you usually or have had it or the person that makes that made it do you have a do you have like a strong memory food is really what i'm getting at cuz that's what so, i really like about this book yeah the the one that comes to mind and that that i am just thinking of as you're saying that is um susanna has a chicken cacciatore recipe that she Ooh, makes yeah and um, chicken cacciatore is basically you take um, red sauce and some red wine and some like diced onions and you throw it in a pot and you like just, just boil it with chicken in there. You yeah. just cook chicken in there and, it, and then you serve it over pasta and it's real good. Um, it's a simple dish. It's a good dish. I remember it as being like one of those really important milestones between my mm -hmm. childhood and teen food palette to my oh, like, adult sure. food palette. Cause I did not like for a long time, I did not like onions. And that, that partly came from my dad who had an experience where he ate onions and I threw up. <laughs> okay. I did but, same um, with me and eggs. I had to come, I had to come back to eggs. Yeah. And you still haven't come around on like gummy candies. We didn't get you there though. Nope. Um, but yeah, like she, I feel like that was the first time I had onions in a form where <laughs> they were diluted enough that I would try them in the first place. And then oh, after sure. that, I learned that I actually like onions a lot. Okay. And now like onions are my jam. That's good. Well, and what's cool and so, is that like yeah, it's, Susanna's it's not, part of that growth for you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, and, and, and I, she was similarly a picky eater as a kid. Like I think we yeah. both- were the kid who brought the bag of McDonald's into the Chinese restaurant. <laughs> but like, she was a little bit ahead of me in that regard. And so, yeah, sure. like, her making that family recipe, which we don't make a ton, but like, I do really like when we make it because one, it tastes good Two, it has this like attachment for me and three, it makes a lot of leftovers. So you can just like eat it. Ah, uh, that's time. good. That's good. Um, do you have a meal that you like have an emotional attachment to making? You like making pizza a lot for people, I do, I do and you like, like and you pizza. do you like making it for people. I've seen I do, you. Do that. I like making yeah. pizza for people because it's something like it's a it's like Susanna is really good at baking, and she is kind of I enjoy baking, but sure. like baking is Susanna's thing, so I can't yeah. really like I can't bake stuff for people because if we're in a situation where baking is required, <laughs> Susanna is going to handle it. Sure, but um. Yeah, like pizza is a thing. I feel like I've got a really good handle on it. Like it's, it's complete. It's it's off the beaten path enough, like homemade food wise, that mm. people are impressed when you make it for them. Yeah, yeah. And also, I enjoy the opportunity to like experiment. Like it's it's one of those foods where I feel comfortable winging it. Yeah, which, which is not like I don't know a lot of meals well enough to do that, but pizza I do. Yeah, so like uh, as I transition over to mine, I'll just reference the book again real quick. Like the book does take time to demonstrate Tita's skill and her knowledge and the amount of work that goes into most of these meals. Most of these meals are like several hours, if not days of work. And a lot of it's because it's not 
you know, everything's coming from scratch. There's like a quote from uh, the author at one point in, in a New York Times interview where she's like dissing on microwaves because like it just came from a factory. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> um, sure. So like similarly, like when Laura bakes either a pie or a cake, like I've seen how much time that takes. And I've seen her like research recipes based on who will be eating it or like look into how to decorate it for that person. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when we were dating early on and like the first time I was like, I'm going to cook dinner for you. I like found this like pasta bacon and spinach recipe that has now become one that I can like, I can kind of riff on. Oh, I have these tomatoes instead of those tomatoes. Oh, I have peppers right. this week. Oh, I have, I have real garlic. I have garlic powder. Like it's fine. And, um, and we had, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but there was a time when Craig came to our house and he went to cook bacon and, and didn't I didn't know you it. needed it to bad. flip it, to cook both sides. You thought you just cooked it all the way through on the one side. I've come a long way. Um, you've come a long way. That's the only re- I share that story to show that you've come a long way and also to make fun of you a little bit. Yeah, but it's mostly true. the first one. It's like it's 80, 20. Yeah. Um, but I like I think about that one as a like that stage in Laura's and Laura and I's relationship in terms of now we are we're not just going out, you know, and we're not just like coming back to someone's place after like hanging out with people mutually it's like no we're gonna sit and i'm gonna make you a thing or you're gonna make me a thing and then we're gonna talk while we're doing it and that like that shared experience of who you're making the meal for and the work you're putting into it and their response to it is very much a part of this book i feel Um, like like does timing come up in this book too because just thinking about these meals that we're talking about they get better for the other person if they are like coming home from work and you are like close to done with it and like the whole house smells like it and you're like they're going to get this product of a lot of work that you've made without them having to experience the work which i feel like makes it a better surprise or like a better experience yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about my experience making pizza and stuff but i don't know if that like applies to you or applies to the book or whatever. i'm trying to i'm trying to remember if there's a specific section of the book that applies to that there's one where they talk about making i think it's the chiles that you have to make the day before and then like plan it all so that they can rest properly mm-hmm. um in my own life there's my it's like the standard kind of like breaded chicken homemade chicken nugget situation but that for me is like that's a thing i learned from my mom and that's a a variations on that meal is a thing i i hold fondly from my mom's kitchen but that's Mm -hmm. the kind of thing where you're like oh crap i have a bowl of eggs and a bowl of flour and a bowl of breadcrumbs and now my hands are swamp thing but i'm still trying to make chicken nuggets like let's this is a mess (laughs) um and then like how do you do that while you're like oh but i decided to make a vegetable so that it's not just fried chicken today Uh uh-oh um like that that part of cooking I, i'm still getting better at but <laughs> again that's part of the work and those and when you're making that much chicken there are leftovers which leftovers as we're saying are very important it's pretty good it's pretty good um there i think what this book really gets to and it's something that seems very personal to the author um and it's obviously very personal to tita is this sense of like you can find mastery in sustenance like you can find mastery in supporting the people around you and ensuring that they have 
something to eat and you can it doesn't just have to be like yo i i nuked some mac and cheese for you but like the process by which you make this meal and who made it first you know two generations ago um can all play into the relationship between you and and the person you're cooking it for mm-hmm. um and that is like the the beat to beat through line underneath this love story which is standing in front of this revolutionary backdrop uh, of this woman also this personal story of this woman kind of taking charge of her life and and making decisions for herself so it's a cool book and it made me very hungry Mm -hmm. (laughs) like uh i need to go get um some mexican food (laughs) i need to go get some like poblano i really want some poblano peppers right now that's really what i want see you later see you later um, if you, the listener, have any cool recipes that you want to share with us or some foods that are important to you, um, you can send them to us at twitter.com slash overdue pod or facebook.com slash overdue pod. Or if you have thoughts on the film, I haven't seen the film. I understand, as we said before, it's very highly regarded. I'd love to hear feedback about it. Um, thanks to people who reached out to us this week, including Graham, Mandy, Natalia, Melissa, Mel, Sarah, Grace, who celebrated a birthday, Albie, Mr. J, Nick, Michael, Steampunk Cavalier, Katie, Sean, Carol, Katie, Starfish Chick, Glenn, Taniqua, Hannah, Josh, Ewan, Aaron and our friends over at the librarian is in podcast. We also have an email, Andrew. I didn't mention it. Overduepod at gmail.com. Yeah. What else do you want to talk about as we end the episode? Uh, just if you want to know anything about anything else about the show, go to overduepodcast.com. That is our internet website. We have links to subscribe to the show. We have links to Headgarmer Podcast Network and Spreaker, our podcast host. We have Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read. Um, something you can do this week if you want to help us is uh, hit up iTunes and review us, rate mm-hmm. and review us. That helps us rise in them rankings and it makes us feel good about ourselves and it helps other people discover the show. Like We don't advertise to get the word out. So word of mouth is pretty much the only way this stuff finds its way into new ears. <laughs> so if you if yeah. you want to inflict on other people what you have just heard. Yeah, please do. You gotta tell them about it. Yeah, and tell and them a, on iTunes. Tell and them a way Twitter. to tell and a way Spread to tell strangers word. is on iTunes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, next um, week, so, Andrew is what? Is that our live show from? Yeah. Boston? Ne- so, so next week we are posting the audio from our Boston live show. Uh, Craig read Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Um, we are going to be coming up with our schedule for August super soon. So look at the website and at the Facebook page for that. It'll be there. Uh, in in short order, and if you came out to our Philadelphia live show and saw me talk about Anne of Green Gables, I assume it went great. I assume you had a great time, and thanks so much for coming out. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, that's what I got. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Until next week, you know what to do. Try to be happy. That was a headgum podcast. I'm trying to think if there's a better podcast name about Waluigi that we could come up with. Oh, sure. You want to just riff right now? I can't think of a good one, though. <laughs> like Tall Boys, a, ba- a tall Bad Brothers fan cast. No, because Wario's not tall. I mean, maybe you do just you riff on the names of real podcasts like...
Oh, this sure. wild American life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. It's not good. It's something. It's not good. What? What? TF with Mark Marin and Waluigi. <laughs> <laughs> we got Barack Obama in the garage. Wait, wah. I think wait, I think Mark Maron might just be Waluigi. I think I figured it out. <laughs>